For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. This is the word of the Lord. If you take a trip where you intend to go learn some things about history, you can be sure you're going to spend some time in a cemetery. You'll be spending some time standing beside graves. It certainly was true with us who went on the Reformation tour trip just recently. As we traveled through Germany and then through England, we went to a lot of cemeteries, stood beside lots of graves. Some of the more notable ones were when we were in Wittenberg, Germany, we went to Martin Luther's grave. It was in a beautiful church, the same church where he nailed his 95 theses to the door, 95 things he wanted to discuss about church reformation, and that's what started the Protestant Reformation. You know, he went and stood beside his grave, and you thought about all how the world has changed because of what this man did. In Leipzig, we went and stood beside the grave of Johann Sebastian Bach, And you thought about all the music that he had composed that the world still plays. When we were in England, we went there to Wesley Chapel in London. And out back, we went and stood beside John Wesley's grave, the founder of the Methodist Church. Then we went right across the street to a cemetery and stood beside Susanna Wesley's grave, his mother. We went to St. Paul's Cathedral. What a beautiful place in London. And if you go down below, down in the basement, if you will, there's all these tombs, all these crypts. There are hundreds of people who are so significant in the history of England, like Lord Nelson and others. And you go and stand beside these tombs and you think of all the history. We went to Westminster Abbey. Westminster Abbey, there's more than a thousand people buried in this beautiful place. They have all these little chapels along the side and and they have all these sarcophagus and you have these wonderful carvings on these tombs and it's the kings and the queens of England down through the centuries. And again, you go and you stand there and you think about these people 200 years, 400 years, a thousand years ago. It's amazing. And then we went to a cemetery and stood beside the grave of Winston Churchill. It wasn't that many years ago. As prime minister, he was rallying the people of England to fight back against the Nazis, and they managed to hold on. He was an incredible man who led his people in its darkest nights. Well, after the tour was over, there was a couple more things that Marsh and I wanted to see in France. And so after the group had left, we took the channel over to Paris for just a couple days because there's a few things that I really wanted to see. One of the things that I wanted to see was the Père Lachaise Cemetery. Père Lachaise is maybe the most visited cemetery in the world. It's an incredible place. When they started it back in 1800, it was because during the time of Napoleon, it's because they had so many people, and Paris was old, and they'd had so many people that they'd run out of space in their cemeteries. 
So Napoleon decided to start several cemeteries on the outskirts, out of town. Now it's in, easily in town, but in those days it was out of town. And so they got 110 acres. Now you think about that, 110 acres for the cemetery. It is enormous. And they opened it early, early 1800s, and the first year four people were buried there. The second year, maybe six people were buried there. Nobody wanted to be buried in this cemetery that seemed outside of town and is it really Christian and, and no one else is really buried there. So what they did was they went and they got the bodies of Peter Abelard and Eloise. And they brought them onto the side of one part of the cemetery and buried them and built this beautiful crypt all around them of stones from the abbey where she had been the abbess. Now they had died almost a thousand years ago. But everybody still knew the stories of Abelard and Eloise. Amazing people. It really went back all the way to, as I say, a thousand years ago, almost 1100. It turned out that Abelard was a philosopher and theologian living in Paris, teaching at Notre Dame. Eloise was about 20 years younger than him. She was being taken care of by her uncle, Fulbert, and it turned out that he wanted her to be well-educated. Amazing for a thousand years ago to want to educate a woman, but Eloise was brilliant. She would know Latin, Greek, Hebrew. I mean, she was a leader. And so it was, she's studying with the great Peter Abelard. They fell in love, and suddenly Eloise turns up pregnant. They secretly get married, but when her uncle finds out about it, he is furious. And so he sends Eloise off to a convent to be a nun. He sends his men and they brutalize Abelard. He ultimately decides to become a monk, becomes a priest. And in the end, she does become a nun. And she grows up through there at the abbey. And soon she is running the abbey. She's the abbess. She is so very talented and a leader and does a brilliant job at making it all work. In the meantime, Abelard comes along and he now is putting out all kinds of new philosophy and theology. And he put forth a theology that looked different at the way that Jesus was crucified and what it told us about the love of God. It was different from what the church had been saying for years, but he put forth this new idea and there was a man named Bernard who rose up to fight against it. And this is what happened in the church all the time. You know, we had one church. And it would put forth different ideas and they would argue about it. And then the church would decide, here's the one thing we believe. And so they were arguing about it. And the church said, we're going to go with Bernard. And so Abelard was declared a heretic. And Bernard was made a saint. And they named a dog after him. That's very appropriate. And if Abelard had won, if we had followed some of his theology, I really believe the church would have been maybe a little more loving down to the last 1,000 years. It was because really of his teachings and their lives that I wanted to go to this cemetery. That's the grave where I wanted to go and stand.
When we got to the cemetery, it turned out to be such an amazing place. 110 acres. You had all these crypts. It's been said that in the last 200 years, it's 200 years old this year, it is said in the last 200 years, a million people have been buried there. And what they started doing was, you know, you'd have a family grave and so someone else died, well, you just dig it up and stick another one on top and you just kind of start stacking them all up in the same family grave. That's how you get more people in. Or they had their little mausoleums, these kind of tombs, and so you start putting in shelves and you just keep building up and you kind of stick them in, one on top of the other, right on up. And so more and more people are there. It is so tight and there's so many of these buildings, but it's still an active cemetery. And in order to keep it as an active cemetery, they've started a new program. And now what you can do if you want to come in and get a a grave, a, a plot, well, you can lease it for 10 years, for 30 years, for 50 years. To lease it for 50 years costs a little bit more than leasing it for 10 years. But the idea is you've leased it for 10 years, you're buried there. After 10 years, they dig you up and store you somewhere else. Lease is up. That way they can lease it out again. And so you have all this activity going on there. It's, it's an amazing place. Lots and lots of famous people. So we come walking in and I'm thinking, how do I find Abelard and Eloise's grave? And I went over to a guard who was standing there. He did not speak hardly any English. And I went and I said, I'm looking for Abelard and Eloise's grave. Abelard and Eloise. I said I was looking on a map and it's very close to Jim Morrison's grave. Ah, Jim Morrison's grave. Go up two streets, down over three. Knew exactly where that was. Most of you will remember Jim Morrison, lead singer for The Doors, a rock band back in the 60s. Light my fire, hello, I love you. Songs a lot of us grew up singing back in the 60s. And Jim Morrison was with The Doors and they were so successful, but he was a troubled young man. By the time that 1970 rolled around, he quit the band, moved to Paris in order to write poetry. And in 1971, they found him in a bathtub dead from coronary arrest, believed caused by a drug overdose. He was 27 years old. He was buried there at Père Chase Cemetery 46 years ago. And whenever the tour buses pull up, they all get out and everybody wants to go see where Jim Morrison is buried and And so we went there, and sure enough, there were all these people around the grave. But that's not why I went there. We came back down the hill trying to look for Abelard and Eloise. And it didn't take long to see this beautiful crypt. And I went over and stood by it, and I stayed there longer than any other grave I stood beside in the entire trip. And as I stood there, there'd be two or three people who'd come by every now and then. It used to be the most visited grave in the cemetery. But now it's Jim Morrison and some others. But I stood there and I thought about these people and how they lived and they were not perfect people but they were people of love and they were people of faith and they lived the best they could and the challenges that came their way. And I thought about a thousand years ago, a thousand years And as I started thinking about all the graves that I'd gone to see throughout this trip these last several years, 
I started thinking about how through the years, all these graves come and they always have a date born and a date they died. Everybody on every grave, the date they were born and the date they were died. Didn't matter whether that was 46 years ago or whether it was a thousand years ago, it was always the same. And as I stood there at Abelard and Eloise's grave, I, I thought of the scripture. There is a season for everything under the sun, a time to be born and a time to die. It is life. A time to be born and a time to die. It doesn't matter whether it's somebody who lived 46 years ago or a thousand years. It does not matter whether you started the Protestant Reformation or you were a rock singer. There will be a beginning and there's an end. And the question that really comes is, what do you do in between? What do you do with the time that is yours? For it is limited. For me, it was one of those existential spiritual moments standing there with that sense of feeling. That's why this morning I want to start a new sermon series entitled, Things You Won't Regret. The end will come. And when the end comes, you don't want to be full of regrets. You want to have lived and lived well. To be preparing for this, I started reading a book entitled The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. It was written by a lady named Bronnie Ware. She wasn't a hospice nurse, but that's what she did for many years was she was a caregiver to the dying. And, and as she did this over a number of years, she began to write down the things that she saw over and over again that people would regret when they got near death. And one of the top five that people seem to regret is they said, I regret that I didn't let myself be happy. I could have been. I didn't think I could. But I could have been. I regret that I didn't let myself be happy. And I thought about the words of Jesus when he said on the night of the Last Supper, I have told you these things so that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. The promise to the disciples, the promise to you and me is because of our faith, we can deal with the circumstances of life and we can know joy. And what I want to suggest on this very first day of the series is we make a conscious decision are we going to be grateful for the life that we have today? Are we going to be grateful and choose to know joy? It's a choice you make. And because of our faith, we can make that choice in all circumstances. You know, one week ago, we were having to deal with the horrible news of what happened in Las Vegas. I mean, here 59 people go to a concert and for no reason their life is snuffed out. 500 plus people are wounded. So many people's lives were changed forever. You know, it's one of those kind of things that's been all week long. You're seeing it and you're hearing the stories. It's the kind of thing 
that you don't want to keep listening to, but you can't seem to turn the TV off. I saw one man being interviewed, and he had been there, and he said, you know, this night changed our lives forever. He didn't elaborate. He didn't talk about it anymore. And I got to thinking after it was over, did it really? How many times there's some tragedy that we're involved in and we think it's changes and then we just go back and live the same way? Or I thought, well, maybe it did change his life forever. He seems incredibly sad, understandably so. Did he mean he was going to be depressed forever? How frightening to go to a concert and suddenly people are being shot. Did he mean that everyone would live with a sense of fear for the rest of their lives? Going into large gatherings would be afraid? Did he mean, you know, this is a night that reminds us that life is uncertain. Under the sun there is a season for everything under the sun, a time to be born and a time to die. We better live in this moment. We will be changed forever. I hope you do not live with depression and sadness forever that you live in fear because of what happened forever. You have the power because of your faith to choose to be grateful in the moment and choose to know joy, to be happy. Jesus said, I have told you these things while I am with you so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. If you choose to live in gratitude, and you choose to live in joy, it is something when you come to the end you will not regret. I just want to say two things about that quickly this morning. First of all, don't wait until everybody acts the way you want them to act, to be grateful, to be happy. If you wait for everybody to act the way you think they ought to act before you can be happy, I can assure you, you're going to come to the end and have lots of regrets because it isn't going to happen. It's in spite of the fact of how everybody acts, you can choose to be grateful and to know joy. I told you how for 1,500 years we had one church and the church would decide the one thing we believe. And then you have Martin Luther come along in the early 1500s. And he starts preaching, well, we could do things differently in the church. And over these next few weeks, I'm going to tell you a lot of the things that he decided we could do. And he started preaching about them, and lots of people responded. And when they all responded, then we suddenly had this Protestant church going on. Now, he knew that if everybody could read the Bible for themselves and everybody got to think for themselves... Well, that would change the church, but he also knew they'd all think like him. Boy, was he wrong. It didn't take him long to find out, okay, here's what I'm thinking, and we all should be allowed to think and discover not everybody thought the same way. That's why today, 500 years later, there are thousands of denominations. He would be stunned. But very early on in his day, he found out there was a man in Switzerland named Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli was a Catholic priest, 
And he liked what he heard from Martin Luther and these new ideas of how to worship and church. And he began preaching in Zurich and the people in Zurich began to respond and Zurich became a hotbed for Protestantism. To throw off, we're not going to do it like the old ways we used to do it with our Catholic church. No, we're going to do it this new way. It would ultimately become the Reformed church. But Zwingli was doing this while Luther was doing his thing over in Germany and they knew of each other and they said, let's get together and see if we can work together on this project. And so they met for this conference. They had 15 things to talk about. And in the end, they agreed on 14. But there was that 15th. The question about when you have communion and you have the bread and the wine, does the body of Christ truly become the body of Christ and the blood of Christ in that bread and wine? Or is it symbolic? They could not agree on that one. Boy, they called each other names. They wrote terrible things about each other. They were smoking. They had this serious disagreement and falling out. And scholars like to say, you know, it just shows what's going to happen and how they went away all mad. Well, it is true they went away and said, we can't work together. But that's not the spirit in which they left. We, we tend to gloss over that because it makes a better story for everyone to go away mad. But if you read what really was said, I want to I read it to you. Zwingli declared, the early church fathers, even if they disagreed, nevertheless, did not condemn one another. In turn, Luther declared to Zwingli, let us look to the future. If we cannot agree on everything, we can still enter into fellowship. At the close of the conversations, Luther thanked Zwingli and asked for forgiveness for his sometimes sharp words and reiterated his desire that their common cause might unite them in mutuality. Zwingli was almost weeping and he expressed his desire for friendship and to seek it even more now. And Luther said, At this time we have not reached an agreement as to whether the true body and blood of Christ are bodily in the bread and wine. Nevertheless, each side should show Christian love to the other side. If you're waiting for everybody to act the way you want them to act, before you can know joy, before you can be grateful, you're going to come to the end and have regret. I think about Jesus on the night of the Last Supper. Judas was about to betray Him. The disciples were about to deny Him and run away. Pilate was about to try Him and He would be beaten and in less than 24 hours He would be crucified and dead. It was on that night that Jesus said, I have told you these things that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. Not everybody's going to act the way you want them to act or think the way you want them to think. If you're waiting for that, you will come to the end with regrets. If you choose in this moment to be grateful and choose to be happy, it's something you will not regret when the end comes. And secondly, don't wait for all circumstances to be right before you can give thanks. Don't wait for all the circumstances to be right before you can give thanks. 
How many times in your life have you thought, you know, if I could just solve this problem, everything would be okay. If I could just solve that, everything would be all right. If you keep waiting for all the circumstances to be right before you can choose to be happy or grateful, you're going to be sadly disappointed. Again, it's the Apostle Paul who says to us, we believe that all things can work together for good of those who love the Lord. We are sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The promise for us is we know the presence of Christ in our lives and it is through God's grace that we don't wait for circumstances to be just right. We don't wait for everybody else to do exactly what we think they ought to do. We know we have the strength now to make the decision to be grateful, to be happy, to live in this moment. Because there is a time to be born and there is a time to die. And we get to choose what we're going to do in between. I got a, got a test for you this morning, a quiz. What does Christina Aguilar, Britney Spears, Justin Timberlake, and Ryan Gosling all have in common? They were all Mouseketeers. They were all Mouseketeers. They were all a part of the Mickey Mouse Club. Now, you, you really wouldn't think about that, but that's, they all had their ears. Now, you know, we, we all have been there. We'd go to Disney World. I took my kids, grandkids, went down. Everybody gets their ears. I mean, you got to get your ears when you go and be a part of the Mickey Mouse family. That's been going on now for decades and decades. And all these people are part of the Mickey Mouse Club. Now, it's fascinating. It's been restarted many times throughout these decades. And I just read it's about to get restarted again in 2017 as Club Mickey Mouse. And now it's going to be on Facebook and Instagram. All the new times and the way that things are changing. But, you know, it didn't start now. It's actually started back in 1955. In 1955, Walt Disney came up with the idea that he wanted to have um, the Mickey Mouse Club, and he didn't want child actors, he wanted real kids. So his staff went out and they started trying to find kids to be a part of the Mickey Mouse Club. But it was Walt who happened to be one night at a play because of his kids who saw a girl performing, and he decided to choose her. It was his choice. They wanted 24 children to be in the Mickey Mouse Club. She was number 24. Her name was Annette Funicello. It turned out that Annette had been living on the East Coast with her family. Her father was a car mechanic. They were struggling financially, and so they moved to the West Coast. He was having a hard time finding work. Her mom was a stay-at-home mom. In the end, they found that Annette was very shy and in order to help her overcome her shyness, they signed her up for dance classes. They sacrificed so she could do it. And so she learned to start doing dancing, singing. She got in this little production there in her community. 
and Walt Disney happened to be there. He saw her and he chose her and she became a part of the original Mickey Mouse Club. And she became the most popular of all the Mouseketeers. I mean, she was so cute. But she wasn't just cute on the outside, her spirit. She was kind and she was fun. You just gravitated towards Annette Funicello. And so he had a great run. In the end, she was receiving 6,000 letters a week for fan mail. 12 years old, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. Suddenly she is so well known. They then start making Disney movies like The Shaggy Dog. That's a good one. The Shaggy Dog, and she's starring in The Shaggy Dog. And the TV show, Zorro, she's now in that. TV, singing. And then as a teenager, the 60s brought about a whole new thing. Surfboards. Everybody wanted to surf. And there was a new dress code called bikinis. And suddenly they were wanting to make all kinds of movies. They were all the same thing about the beach. And guys and girls down on the beach. Beach blanket bingo. Bikini party. All these beach shows. It's what everybody wanted to see and talk about. And it was Annette Funicello um, who was starring in all of these shows. She had promised Walt Disney she would be very careful not to become lewd or in any way over the line. And so she really made decorum. And yet they had so much fun. Frankie Avalon was usually her co-star. I mean, those were some great times back in the 60s. Again, she had such great success and fame. In her early 20s, she got married. She had three children. Sixteen years later, the marriage fell apart and she was divorced. About five years later, she'd get married a second time. But it's when she was 45 years old, she noticed something strange happening. She went to the doctor and she was diagnosed with MS. This was decades ago. They didn't have treatments. They didn't really know what to do or write drugs. Four years later, she could hardly walk. And it's when she couldn't walk that she went public at 49 that she had MS. It wouldn't be very long after that that she would be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. She would be in a wheelchair and then she would get to the point that she could not speak and finally the point that she could not get out of bed, she could not walk or talk. She had to have 24-hour care and it was just four years ago in 2013 when she was 70 years old that Annette Funicello passed away. It was back in the early 90s though when she had become confined to a wheelchair that they had a made-for-TV movie of her life. And they had an actress who played Annette in the show, showing how she had become a mouseketeer and, and then all the movies and all the things she had done with her life and how she had gone through all of this life and always kept a very positive, peaceful, joyful spirit. She was a lady of faith. She had dealt with it all. And in this movie, if you saw it, the actress comes out, she's in a wheelchair and she's teaching children a lesson. And she turns her wheelchair around like she's going to leave and then suddenly stops like she remembered something else and turns the wheelchair back around 
And when they turn it back around, the real Annette Funicello is sitting in the wheelchair. And she looks at the children and she says, remember, life does not have to be perfect for it still to be wonderful. And she turns around and she is gone. For someone who knew what it meant to be poor and rich, childhood fame and movies, the joy of being a mother, to divorce, to illness, life doesn't have to be perfect to still be wonderful. You and I do not have to wait for everyone to act the way we want them to act. We don't have to wait for all circumstances to be right. It is because of our faith we have the power to choose to be grateful now. To know happiness now. The truth is there is a season for everything under the sun. A time to be born and a time to die. And in that in-between If you and I choose to be grateful and to be happy because of our faith, you're going to come to the end and you won't be full of regret. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.